Let me invite you to open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. Passage uh, listed there is verses 1 through 9. I think we'll get through verse 1 this morning. But let's read our passage before we uh, look closely at this. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations." to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is God's word, his authoritative, inerrant an inspired word. Let's uh, pray and ask for his uh, spirit to help us as we look more closely into these important verses. Jesus, we do now come to you and pray that your spirit would uh, strengthen us anew to have seeing eyes. Oh, Christmas is such a treacherous time. Uh, We go to sleep on everything. It's so, we've heard it so, so often. Uh, Father, Let the truth of your son never become old or tired, uh, but refresh us and renew us today that we can see Christ in a new light. Only you can do this. Jesus, please uh, work among us today. Strengthen me to preach your word and give us hearing ears as your disciples. We pray, Savior, in your name. Amen. As Isaiah wrote these words, Idolatry was rampant in Israel. He wrote probably in the 7th century B.C. Uh, Before Christ is how we used to say it. That's now B.C.E., before the common era. So that means you'd have to dial your calendar from 2022 all the way back to the year zero and then keep going another 700 years. This was written a long, long time ago. And so you might wonder how such a text as this could have anything to say to us here, modern people in the year 2022, almost 2023. Well, if idolatry was merely bowing down to 
what we would call figurines, little images, we might conclude that Isaiah's message belonged to a previous era, that it was for a time long past. But God's word tells us that an idol is also something we can set up in our heart. In fact, uh, it doesn't have to involve a physical object at all, a, a figurine or an image or burning incense. The Lord told Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 14, he, he describes some of the Israelites, these men have taken idols into their hearts. This might redefine idolatry for some of us here, as uh, Pastor Ray Ortland redefined it, or defined it. He said, an idol is any heart-level substitute for God. It's not just what we think of in the Old Testament scriptures of an image of Baal or Molech or things like that. By, by his definition, a, an idol being any heart-level substitute for God, we'd have to, I think, fairly well conclude that idolatry is still rampant. Rampant in, in our era. And even rampant in the church. Widespread. Because John writes in the New Testament, he concludes his first letter, little children, keep yourself from idols. And then, of course, in the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin's now famous words, the heart remains a perpetual factory of idols. Isn't that an image? Our heart churns out idol after idol after idol. So it's not just an Old Testament problem or a New Testament problem or even a medieval problem. It's, it's a modern problem. Anything that's a heart-level substitute for God, we see this in our era, don't we? So when Isaiah writes about idolatry, he definitely has something to say to us, and it's, it should be taken seriously, again, especially around this time of year. Christmas can be so treacherous, treacherous to our hearts. So how does Isaiah address this problem of idolatry? How does he draw our attention away from heart-level substitutes? What is his antidote for idolatry? He gives us God's alternative in fairly stunning and spectacular detail. Isaiah presents us with a picture of the servant of the Lord. He gives us a, a prophetic portrait of Jesus Christ in, in, in stunning and spectacular detail. Our passage today is called the First Servant Song. First, because there are at least four servant songs in this part of Isaiah, possibly five, according to some. It's called a song, not because it was ever put to music and sung, uh, but because it's Hebrew poetry. And so here in this First Servant Song, these first nine verses, uh, there are two aspects of the servant's ministry that Isaiah describes. Again, <laughs> we'll get through about part of this first one. 
But this first aspect is the servant of the Lord faithfully reveals the word of God. And here in this uh, first part, uh, he's going to talk first about his mission. And then secondly, he's going to describe the manner in which he does this. It's really his mission that I want to zero in on today and draw your attention to. And this is uh, contained all in verse 1. And, and in regard to his mission, Isaiah describes a servant of the Lord really in, in quite some detail. He mentions seven distinct qualities of the servant of the Lord. Seven distinct characteristics of this servant who uh, we see later on is Christ. So to begin with, uh, in this uh, list of seven qualities, Isaiah says he's distinct. That is to say that this servant could not be more different from false gods. Uh, he is completely other. Something far beyond what Israel has been worshiping. Look in verse 1, it says, Behold my servant. And I love to draw your attention to this word, behold. I think it's so significant. I always think it's significant. It's a tiny little Hebrew word. It consists of two letters. It's called, a, it's called an interjection. It's, it's an abrupt remark or, or interruption. And some places the Bible translates, translates it, surely. Uh, here it's behold. It means, look at this. Or we might say more casually, check this out. Uh, that's the force of this little word. And it connects our, our servant song to what's gone right before. Did my mic just go dead? No. All right. I was hearing myself and then I stopped hearing myself. Whatever. Uh, anyway, back to our Hebrew word. This little tiny word. Um, what it does is connects our servant song with what's directly above it. And if you'll look up the page just a little bit, you'll see a paragraph and it's entitled The Futility of Idols. And um, the Lord just describes how pointless idols are in this, this paragraph, whether they're hand-carved images of ancient gods or whether they're more sophisticated idols of the heart like success and comfort and popularity or material wealth. I want to point out a couple things the Lord says about these idols in the paragraph above. Uh, look at verse 24 with me. It says, Behold, uh, there's our word again. Same little interjection. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. This speaks to the idol but then especially to the idol worshiper. And it's just as if the Lord is saying, look, look at what pathetic idol worshipers Israel has become. And then he goes further in verse 29. Look down there. It says, behold, there's the same word. Uh, our interjection, behold, now addressing the idols. They're all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. What a, what a figure of speech. Their metal images are empty wind. Look at this. These idols are meaningless. But then we get to verse 1 of our passage, 
And notice it again. Behold my servant. Look at this. Look at my servant. Instead of those pathetic, do-nothing gods of yours, instead of those powerless, meaningless gods, look at my servant. Look at my servant and be satisfied. And the Lord would say the same thing to you and me today here in 2022. Compared to the idols of the heart that we've established, he tells us in our frustration, look at this. Look at my servants. Look at him and feast and be satisfied. You that are expecting so much this season, you who have wishes for family and happiness and joy and fulfillment, and I hope you get some of those, and, and family reconciliation and, and, I don't know, the next, next bright, shiny thing. And God says, look at this. Look at this. Look at my servant. Look at Christ. Behold my servant. First quality that he mentions then is that he is distinct. He is different from idols. Could not be more different. He goes on to name a second quality. He is a servant, which I realize is redundant. Uh, the servant is a servant. Um, and by this I mean Jesus was obedient to his heavenly Father. Behold my servant. Now that's not a complicated Hebrew term with a lot of twists of meaning. Quite simply, it refers to a slave or a servant, a person working to serve someone else. So we want to ask this morning, in what sense was Jesus uh, a servant of his Father? In what way? Did Jesus the Son serve God the Father? Well, to begin with, we have to categorically and unequivocally declare that in no way was Jesus inferior to the Father. God the Son and God the Father, as well as God the Spirit, are equal in substance and being. They share the same attributes or characteristics. Each person of the Trinity is is uh, co-eternal, co-omnipotent uh, with the other members of the Trinity, and I could go on with other attributes. They all share these uh, attributes, and because of this, each is God. And so Jesus expresses this in John chapter 10 when he says to the Pharisees, I and the Father are one. Now, the Pharisees understood clearly that he was claiming to be equal with God because they picked up rocks to stone him to death because he made himself equal with God. So we have to say clearly, in no way was Jesus inferior to the Father, but equal in substance and being Jesus was God. But the Bible also shows us that there is a hierarchy among the members of the Trinity, what you and might refer to as, as a chain of command. Uh, theologians have a uh, $10 word for this. They call this the economic Trinity. 
And we see this order in the Trinity in passages like this one in 1 Corinthians 11. It says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. And then you see this in John 14 as well. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. So everything that Jesus did as the Son of God was in obedience to the Father. Uh, he says in John 12, Christ says in John 12, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And then the Apostle Paul brings us out as well, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so the way that Christ served the Father was in obedience to his uh, command, to his direction, uh, to in what to say. We'll see this in just a bit further. The second quality of um, the Son of God is that he was a servant, obedient to the commands of his heavenly Father. Uh, Isaiah continues to fill out this picture for us, and he names another quality, a third one, and it says that he is upheld. And verse 1 continues, Behold my servant whom I uphold. Uh, Jesus, the servant of the Lord, is held tightly by the Father. Isaiah uses this term uphold in a passage that we're all familiar with. Uh, if you think of uh, this loved verse that many of us have memorized, Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And, and the word uphold occurs in this precious verse as well, uh, the same one that we see in 42.1, it, it means to hold something tightly, to grip it fast, uh, to keep someone in uh, a position because they're being held on to so tightly. Or uh, one author put it this way, this means that the Father will exert his power to sustain his servant it is an assurance that no power will be able to overcome him. So Jesus, the servant, is upheld, held onto, grasped tightly by the Father, giving him success in his mission. This brings us to a fourth quality that Isaiah names. He is chosen. A fourth quality that he describes is that the servant was chosen for this role before the foundation of the world. It says, my chosen, uh, whom I uphold, my chosen. Another very straightforward Hebrew word and simply means to be chosen by God for a particular purpose. And Peter gives us a fuller picture of this phrase telling us that Jesus was chosen to be our redeemer in eternity past. Uh, eternity past. So that's way, way back. So I talked about winding the calendar back to the zero. 
and then from zero going back 700 years. And then if you go further back, I don't know if you can do this on your iPhone calendar, but wouldn't it be interesting if you could? Uh, going back all the way to the day of creation, and then before that is eternity past. A long, long time ago. It is then that Christ was chosen to be our Redeemer before sin had ever entered the world. Listen to what Peter says. Knowing that you were ransomed, speaking to us as believers, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. First Peter 1, 18 through 20. Christ was chosen for this role as servant and redeemer by the Father before the world began, before time began. The Father chose Christ to redeem us, to ransom us, to pay the price for our sin on the cross. And through his death on the cross, Jesus paid that price, paid the price for all those that the Father had chosen for salvation and had given him to redeem. So this, in this mission of the servant, we see a fourth quality in that he is chosen by, this, by the Father for this very role before the foundation of the world. There's a fifth quality. Uh, the fifth quality is that uh, the servant is a delight to the Father. Uh, the middle of verse 1 says, In whom my soul delights. Sometimes people can be chosen for a task, and, but not necessarily liked by the one choosing them. Ask anybody who's ever hired someone to do uh, work for them. You don't always like the person you wind up hiring, although Brian is an exception. Don't we all like Pastor Brian? <laughs> the servant of the Lord is someone in whom the Father takes great, great pleasure. Uh, someone in whom the Father delights with all his heart. The Father takes profound delight in his Son. And he expressed this at Jesus' baptism. Uh, you remember this, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The Father expresses this at, at the transfiguration as well. Several chapters later in Matthew, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I think it's practically impossible for you and I to grasp uh, this pleasure that the father has in his son. I, I don't believe that pleasure in our children or our grandchildren uh, 
come even close to this. They, they're only a faint shadow of what we're reading about. We're reading about the delight that the Father had in the Son that the first person of the Trinity had for the second. Jesus was, after all, the, the exact representation of the Father's nature, or as Wayne Grudem translates Hebrews 1, an exact duplicate. And so as the Father looks on the Son, uh, he can feel nothing but sheer, inexpressible delight looking at Christ. And God is serious about delight. And he is serious that you delight in his son to the same level. The same level is impossible. It's infinite beyond us. But Christ is serious about what you delight in. And he puts this portrait of his son out here for us as an antidote to idolatry and tells us, Look at him. Look at this. The servant of the Lord. He is my delight. Well, there is, of course, a sixth thing. We see this sixth quality is he's filled with the spirit of the Lord. Uh, the Father endows the, Holy, the servant with his spirit. Verse 1 again continues... I've put my spirit upon him. Uh, the personal presence of God rests on the servant of the Lord. And Isaiah goes on to describe this in further detail back in chapter 11 where Christ is referred to as the righteous branch. And Isaiah in that passage says this, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, the fullness of God's spirit, God's very presence would descend upon Jesus, enabling him to fulfill his role as our redeemer. And of course, this was fulfilled at Jesus' baptism that we read about just a moment ago in Matthew Three, where it said this, and when Jesus was baptized immediately, he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. This is the sixth quality Isaiah paints of the servant. The Holy Spirit descends on Christ at his baptism, enabling him with power for ministry, enabling him to fulfill his role as our redeemer. One final quality that Isaiah goes on to list, and that is, if you can see it way down there, uh, he is a messenger. Uh, the seventh quality of the servant is that he is a messenger. He proclaims the Father's word. At the very end of verse 1, it says, he will bring forth justice to the nations, we want to stop here and ask, what does he mean by justice? It might sound very trendy that justice is mentioned like this. At first glance, we might think it refers to setting things right, giving people their fair due, um, the treatment they deserve, ruling with honesty and integrity. And 
There's certainly an element of that in this word. When Christ returns, he will set things right. He will rule with absolute honesty and integrity, but this takes place at his second advent. And I believe Isaiah is primarily concerned with the first advent of Christ in these verses. And so Hebrew scholar Alex uh, Machir points out that the word justice refers to the pronouncement of a king. What the king pronounces to be true. The judgment he makes. Or the decision a judge has reached. In other words, Christ uh, declares divinely revealed truth. He came as a servant proclaiming what the Father had decided was true and right. He came as a herald to announce the Father's judgments and truths. Uh, Jesus came as a messenger repeating what he had heard from the Father. And so Christ describes this for us in John 6. I have much to say uh, about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declared to the word, world what I have heard from him. This is what I believe Isaiah is referring to. Christ declaring the word from the Father. And then John 15, For all that I have heard from my Father, I've made known to you. And so Jesus is a messenger of the truth. Uh, the truth from the Father. He announces the Father's judgment, specifically His message. Uh, he announced uh, that God's kingdom had come near. Christ announced that men needed to turn from their sin and put their trust and confidence in Him to enter this kingdom. He announced that all of those that had put their trust and confidence in Him would be forgiven from their sin and receive God's gift of eternal life. This is what it means when Isaiah says he will bring forth justice. He will bring forth a word from God. He will bring forth the truth. And he goes on to say, to the nations. To the nations. This is not a reference to Israel, but to the Gentiles. To non-Jews. To those who were regarded as irreligious and pagans and unbelievers. And, and through this, Christ would fulfill God's promise to Abraham. And your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. This is the mission of the servant. He came as a messenger to the nations, to announce good news to those considered outsiders. He came to reveal the Father to the nations. And this is the seventh thing Isaiah paints for us. It's a quite detailed portrait of the servant of the Lord that he gives, it, gives us. And friend, this is how Isaiah addresses the problem of idolatry. Behold, look at him. Look at him. He draws our attention away from heart-level substitutes for God with this antidote for idolatry. And he gives us this detailed 
presentation of the servant of the Lord, this prophetic portrait of Christ in glorious detail. When I was growing up, it was about this time of year that uh, the Sears toy catalog came out. And uh, I know some of you remember that. Uh, you talk about unbridled coveting. <laughs> Unleashed in the house. I mean, I would sit with that thing for days when it arrived. Fortunately, there was no competition because everybody else in my family was beyond the toy catalog, and so it was mine. <laughs> and, oh, it was something to behold. I mean, they had pages of G.I. Joes and... They had them set up fighting battles and had all their vehicles there on display and you just your mind goes insane and all these Hot Wheels and the Hot Wheel tracks set up and taken photographs of and, and slot car tracks and all the different varieties of tracks you could buy and all this and that and then I suppose for girls they had Barbies and other junk. But... <laughs> But that was of no concern to me. Well, we've, we've grown up and Sears catalog is no more, the toy catalog, and now we've got, uh, we've replaced it with Amazon. And we're not looking at the Hot Wheels, we're looking at real wheels. And we're not looking at G.I. Joes, we're not looking at Barbies, we're looking at uh, promotions and we're looking at retirement accounts investments and we're thinking about uh, success at work success at home and other things that have become heart substitutes that we've put in place in our hearts there was a time for practically every married person in the room when the heart substitute became a woman, a young woman, a fabulous beauty who you had set your eye on and vice versa for the ladies. And it seems to uh, consume us at that point and many times consumes us a little too much. So, I think we should be careful when we talk about idols is not to think of little clay figurines that we've seen in National Geographic, uh, images that you burn incense to or things like that. I mean, I suppose you might know of something similar to that, but they're so sophisticated now. I mean, we're, at, we're Americans, right? We don't fall for stuff like that. But we fall for so much other so many other heart substitutes. These can be good things like family. Uh, you can allow your family to eclipse your devotion to Christ. Who reigns supreme in your household? And if Jesus isn't the first answer that rolls off your tongue, then something's out of place. Family can become a heart substitute for God. And of course, I could go on all afternoon naming heart substitutes and each of us has one suited to our own personalities. But Isaiah's message rings clear as a bell, doesn't it? 
look at this. Look at my servant. Look at my son. Look at what he is and what he does. Look at uh, the fact that I've chosen him before creation. And he's full of my spirit. I delight in him. He pleases me to no end. And he will bring my word, my truth, to the nations. Lord Jesus, give us grace. Give us grace to uh, put you in the place that you so richly deserve. We are merely human. And we confess that we are prone to wander and we are prone to substitutes. Substitutes for you, that is. And so, Savior, as we close today and think about this one verse, this prophecy from Isaiah, please convict us where we need to be convicted. And please redirect our sight where it needs to be redirected and please redirect our affections our our loves to what they need to be set on and please above all take our eyes off the things of this earth and set our attention on the amazing servant of the lord jesus your son father do this please by your good spirit who indwells us we ask this in jesus name Amen.